This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 263rd episode, we have a bunch of news, including a brand new Miragaya find, which is a much more complete skeleton than we've seen before, and a new dinosaur from Japan. We also have an interview with Joe Pegler and Corey Richards from the Aramanga Natural History Museum in Aramanga, Queensland, Australia. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Neovenator, or Neovenator, depending on how you want to say it. Yep, and that goes for a lot of dinosaur names. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into all that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons, and this week we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Cavanaugh, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Avery, Crispy, Jeb from Arkansas, Albertosaurus, Trev, Ayrton and Everett, and Greg. Yeah, thank you so much for being part of our community. We really appreciate all of the support you give us, and and that's a big reason why we were able to go to Australia and see places like the Aramanga Natural History Museum. So thank you so much. And if you want to join this growing community, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. We offer a lot of cool rewards, such as our Discord where you can request dinosaurs and chat with the other enthusiasts. Yep, the Discord server is great. Jumping into the news, our first article is by Francisco Costa and Octavio Mateus, and it was published in PLOS One. It's all about the new Miragaya specimen, which was found in Portugal. So if you're familiar, Miragaya is the stegosaur with spikes instead of plates down its tail, I think it's probably the most famous stegosaur that has that kind of layout, although Kentrosaurus is also depicted fairly often with the half spikes, half plates look. A lot of spiky stegosaurs. There are. Yeah, they're definitely not all like stegosaurus with just plates and then a couple spikes at the end. This paper is focused on Dacentrurine stegosaurs, and it's a really small group of mid and late Jurassic stegosaurs, and they include in order of naming, Dacentrurus armatus from England, which is why they're called Dacentrurine. Gets the honor of the name. Yeah. <laughs> There's also Miragaya longicolum, which is from Portugal. There's Alcovasaurus longispinus from Wyoming, and Adraticlet bulafa from Morocco. I want to mention quickly, too, that Stegosaurus longispinus was named in 1914, and then in 2016, it became Alcovasaurus longispinus. So 
that specific individual and that species was known about for a while, but it later got extracted from Stegosaurus and given its own genus. And then Adra Ticklet isn't mentioned at all in the paper. I think that's probably because Adra Ticklet was published this year, and it was probably after the paper was already written, so probably got left out for that reason. Like most Stegosaurs, Dasentrurine finds are pretty incomplete in general. We often don't find very complete Stegosaurs, unfortunately. And Miragaya longicolum was named based on the front half of the animal in 2009. So it was a partial head, a complete neck with some small plates on it, and front arms. And longicolum literally means long neck. Then it was a little bit later when we found another specimen that had spikes that gave us that distinction of the spiky back half. Dasentrurus armatus was named way back in 1902. It had been Omasaurus armatus in 1875 before that, but that was kind of a pre-filled taxa, so it had to get renamed because it was already the name of something else. And because of that, Dasentrurus clearly gets the naming preference since it was named over 100 years ago and about 100 years before any other <laughs> Dasentrurine was named. Unlike Miragaya, which is known just from the front half, Dasentrurus, at least the holotype, was mostly just the back half of the dinosaur. So people previously have proposed that Miragaya might just be Dasentrurus, and we just have two different halves of the same animal and nothing overlapping, so we shouldn't have given them different names, basically. But if you jump ahead to 2009, some Miragaya-looking bones were found while updating the collection records at the National Laboratory of Energy and Geology in Portugal. These bones were labeled as the ankylosaur Dracopelta, and eventually they figured out that they were dug up in 1959. So they've been sitting there for quite a while, 60 years. Yeah, that happens a lot, though. It does, yeah. So now, 60 years later, we have a description. I guess it only took 50 years to actually find the bones. <laughs> yep. But, yeah. Which is not as long as other bones and other descriptions. Yeah. Yeah, they can sit in collections for a long time. If they don't look exciting and you find something else new, that just always gets priority. The key to this new find is that it has both the front and hind sections of the skeleton. And since it's from Portugal, obviously, we're already starting to assume that it's a Miragaya. And they say, quote, this new specimen is to date the most complete dinosaur described from Portugal and the most complete stegosaur described from Europe, end quote. So it's quite a good dinosaur find and stegosaur find for Europe. <laughs> it's certainly not in amazing condition, though. And that might be obvious considering it sat in a box for 50 years. If it was in great condition, someone probably would have jumped at the opportunity to prep it out a lot earlier. But... It does have both hind legs, most of the tail, a partial spike and plate, some of the hips, ribs, hand slash front foot bones, a lot of the neck, and even part of the skull. That's a good amount. It is, but it sounds a lot better in that description than it really is <laughs> because most of the bones are pretty smashed up and a lot of them are really fragmentary. Mm, so, so it would have been difficult to prepare. Yeah, I think more like once you prepare it, the bone, none of them really look great. Mm. So it's not the kind of thing you'd expect to go on a display and everybody be in awe of, like with Borealopelta or something. It's more like it's really important scientifically because now we can compare the front and back half of the animal. As a result, they pretty definitively showed that Miragaya is a different animal than Dasentrurus. So Miragaya's name appears to be safe. 
but they did propose synonymizing Alcovasaurus with Miragaya, although not at the species level. So before I mentioned that it's Alcovasaurus longispinus, and then there's Miragaya longa column. It's kind of confusing because they both have longa in it. <laughs> but remember, longa column means long neck, whereas longispinus obviously is long spines. And the species still being distinct means that there are now just two Miragaya specimens. There's Miragaya longa column from Portugal and Miragaya longispinus from Wyoming. You mean species, not specimens. Yes. <laughs> There's more than that many specimens. And this might hold up. I mean, we don't know how long it'll last in the literature. It's possible that somebody might say, well, really, we shouldn't have separated out Miragaya from Dawson Truris. And based on this new find, you know, let's just combine all three into Dawson Truris. But we'll just have to see how the, the literature settles out. But no matter what, if you call it Miragaya or Alcovasaurus longispinus, it's very similar to Miragaya longa column, which means that we had these similar stegosaurs in Portugal and Wyoming, both in the late Jurassic. And it shows that stegosaurs could make their way between Europe and North America in the late Jurassic pretty easily. Interesting. Dinosaurs could really make their way around. Yeah. I think they implied too that Miragaya longa column might be a little bit earlier. So it might show that this is the origins of the Miragaya, you know, Dasentrurines on their way into North America. But obviously we have a pretty fragmentary record at this point. And up next, we have our new dinosaur from Japan. Specifically, it's from Fukui. And this one was published by Takuya Imai and others and published in Communications Biology. And so far, there have been quite a few dinosaurs found in Fukui. Just listing the ones that are named after Fukui. <laughs> We've got the Hadrosaur Fuquisaurus, the sauropod Fuqui Titan, and the non-avian theropods Fuqui Raptor and Fuquivenator. So there's already four Fuqui somethings. Mm -hmm. And now we have a fifth one because there's the new flying theropod Fuqui Terex Prima. And Fuqui Terex means Fuqui wing and Prima means primitive. I wonder how many variations you can get. <laughs> there's a, a much longer list. They've already done the easiest ones with Raptor, Saurus, Titan, and Venator. I think those are probably the easiest ones. Mm -hmm. But then you could also have Fuqui Draco or Draken for the dragon. Oh, true. And then in, you know, in China, they always like to do long at the end. So it could be Fuqui long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It could get really confusing. You could have Fuquisaurus and Fuquisora. Oh, yeah. I don't know if they'd allow that. I hope they wouldn't. <laughs> that'd be too much. But back to Fuquiterix. Technically, Fuquiterix is an avialin, meaning it has wings, but it may not have flown all that much. Purists might not consider it to be a bird, or maybe just call it a basal bird. But we usually just call avialins birds because they've got wings. It's generally assumed that they had some level of flight feathers and strong enough wings to actually flap them a little bit and get off the ground one way or another. But the most important thing about Fuquiterix isn't that it's just an avialin, it's that it was three-dimensionally preserved, which makes it unlike Archaeopteryx, which is essentially smashed into a 2D plane. Yep. I mean, everybody knows that. That famous pose. Yeah, where it's smashed with its wings out to its side. Obviously, it wasn't in that position while it was alive. It had to get squished pretty good to end up in that shape. 
Squish pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> like a lithograph. <laughs> so that's also the case for most of the feathered Chinese finds. They're also two-dimensionally smashed. And it works out for those too because it actually helped preserve the feathers that way. Because they, you, And you can kind of see how they're positioned around the body. It's pretty neat. But unfortunately, that means that you can't get a lot of good definition into the sort of overall shape of the bones. You can kind of measure their length and you can see how big it was, but it's hard to get some of the detail about some of the three-dimensional characteristics of the bones that you'd be able to see with most other preservation. So Fuquiterix has this three-dimensional level going for it, but unfortunately the bones are disarticulated. So it's not really perfectly lifelike. They're sort of scattered around and jumbled into a ball. So it still requires quite a bit of interpretation to figure out exactly how the bones would have fit together. Altogether, they found a mostly complete wing, tail, and leg, plus a few important partial bones, including a tiny bit of the jaw, unfortunately there are no teeth, a partial furcula, also known as the wishbone, which is important for flapping wings, some coracoids, which are not fused to the scapula as they are in modern birds, and that's another thing that makes them a little more rigid and better at flapping, and when you combine those features, you end up with something that looks kind of like an Archaeopteryx, but without the big tail fan. Instead, it has a pygo style. So it just has a few little vertebrae that are fused together, kind of like our tailbone, but a little bit bigger. So oh. cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely more bird-like than that big, freaky, extra wing tail that Archaeopteryx and some other early dinosaur birds had. It's probably not too surprising since Fuquiterix is about 30 million years more recent than Archaeopteryx, putting it at about 120 million years old in the early Cretaceous, and they describe it as pigeon-sized. So it was pretty cute. Unfortunately, they didn't find any lags, but that probably means that it was under a year old. So that's kind of sad. <laughs> or that it was even cuter. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> the silver lining. They do think that the growth was slowing, though, so it was likely near full size at this pigeon size. And phylogenetically, it came out just one node more derived than Archaeopteryx, meaning one more down the family tree. So it's a little bit more bird-like, perhaps, than Archaeopteryx, but it's really not that big of a change for 30 million years later. And it's just in between Archaeopteryx and Jeholornis, which is probably the most basal avialin from the j-hole biota so either there's a huge ghost lineage between archaeopteryx and fuquiterix or archaeopteryx was just an evolutionary dead end which seems to be what more and more people are thinking because this is really early bird and then we don't really see a lot else nearby for quite a while it's interesting because for so long it was considered the link between dinosaurs and birds yeah until we found all these really good ones in china and then we're like oh this is a way better link <laughs> But it could also just be preservation because we happen to have this one area in Germany where we find all these Archaeopteryx from 150 million years ago. And then there isn't, you know, one from 140 million years ago just on the road. So who knows? Another case of need more fossils. Yeah. And need more quarries. <laughs> Interestingly, this all makes Fuquiterix the only early Cretaceous avialin without a rigid thorax, or to put it another way, the only non-ornithothoracene from outside northeast China. So really it was just the J-hole biota. And then you had 
Archaeopteryx, but that's in Europe and it's in the Jurassic. <laughs> so yeah, we have a pretty scattered view of this group of animals. But fortunately, what that does mean is that this wasn't just a unique adaptation to a specific environment because in the early Cretaceous, the Fukui area of Japan was warmer and lower lying than the Jehol area of China. So previously people have said, well, maybe there was just some sort of unique environment going on in Northeast China. And that's why we have all these birds that are kind of weird and unique to the area and all these things are popping up there. But having found this one clearly in a different environment, in Japan means that we might be able to find these types of early birds popping up all over the place and not just in very specific environments. Although you definitely need a specific environment to preserve a small bird into a fossil. Very true. Moving on to museum news, the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History in Connecticut will be doing renovations soon, and they recently had art conservators assess their iconic mural, The Age of Reptiles, so this mural is 110 feet long, 16 feet high, and they wanted to assess it before the renovations start because it's going to stay in place while they're doing everything. It will be behind scaffolding, though. So the conservators are determining if the mural has any delicate areas, although anything that's fading or any kind of paint loss will be treated after the renovations. The mural was fully restored about 10 years ago, so they don't think there's going to be anything major to report, but they want to make sure because... Again, it's pretty iconic. It is, yeah. A lot of people have seen this and maybe don't even know where Yale is because <laughs> it's been redistributed all over the world in all sorts of books and magazines and videos. So I definitely knew that image before I knew where it was from. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully they keep it up. Oh yeah, they will. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> this next one is a little bit late, but we tend to record a little early, so... This happened in the U.S. The Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade at the end of November had a dinosaur float. So it was a T-Rex named Rexy, who's the coach mascot. And Rexy was on a float called Rexy in the City. And that's inspired by the city of New York. So that's where the parade takes place. And I only saw one picture. It looked like there was a lot of glitter involved. Oh, really? <laughs> what color was it? I don't know. It's a picture of a picture. So it's a picture of their design that I saw. A whole bunch of different colors, but very glittery. <laughs> Rainbow dinosaur. And sticking with the holiday spirit, the American Museum of Natural History, also in New York, recently put up a nearly 13-foot, 4-meter-tall tree that's decorated with more than 800 origami dinosaurs. Ooh. Yeah. It's too bad we won't make it to New York in time. But <laughs> the museum, apparently every year since the 1970s, has been lighting up their tree that's decorated with some kind of origami thing that's related to the collections. And the theme this year is T-Rex and Friends History in the Making. Some of the origami was donated by professional artists. Most of it was made by the people who designed the tree, Ross Joyce and Talo Kawasaki, as well as volunteers from Origami USA. Hmm. And about a quarter of the 800 pieces were new. The rest had, I guess, been on the tree before. Seems like they would have dinosaurs fitting into multiple themes, so that makes sense. Based on the pictures, it looks like they have hatchlings, T-Rex, Parasaurolophus, and some other prehistoric animals such as a mammoth. They just get really intricate. I have no idea how. I, I can't <laughs> do anything with origami. But anyway, for anyone in New York, the tree will be on display at the first floor Grand Gallery until January 12th. So you have a few weeks to enjoy it. 
So according to the AMNH, a mammoth is a friend of a T-Rex, if it's T-Rex and friends? It's history in the making. <laughs> so, you know, mammoths came after T-Rex as part of the history making. Oh, I see. That's what I'm going to go with. <laughs> Good. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview, which we recorded in Aromanga, Aromanga was actually the inspiration for our dinosaur road trip. They invited us to come out to their museum before we had planned any of this stuff. We were just going to go out there for SVP, maybe swing by Sydney or something. And then we got invited to the middle of the outback. So we decided, well, as long as we're doing that, it's like a two-day drive from any major city. So we might as well drive through some other dinosaur sites. Yeah. And it wasn't a bad drive either. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was. A lot of the road there was a single lane, which is kind of w weird. I mean, like a single lane total for both directions. So when a car was coming the other way, you have to kind of pull halfway off the road or all the way off the road, depending on how big they are, which was a little bit weird. Yeah, but if you're used to driving on the other side of the road, that makes it easier. It does, yeah. There's no mistakes to make. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that was mostly because we came from the northern route. Like we came from Winton down to Aramanga. But once we got to Aramanga and we started heading east, which is the way you'd go from most major cities, it was a little bit easier. It was a really fun drive. Also great for listening to audiobooks. Yeah, it was. And it's the kind of stuff that you don't see unless you go out there. So we really enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Plus the number of birds that we saw on the drive. <laughs> yeah. And other wildlife and termite mounds. 
all filling up fields. Yeah. Yeah, it was really amazing. But without further ado, we're going to go on to our interview with Joe Pegler and Corey Richards. We are joined this week by Joe Pegler, who is the laboratory coordinator, and Corey Richards, who's the operations and marketing coordinator, both at the Aeromanga Natural History Museum here in southwest Queensland. Thank you both for joining us. All right, thank You're you welcome. for having us. Awesome. So what was the original impetus for starting this museum? Start way back at the beginning, if we can. Okay, well, um, 1998, um, there was a visit to this area by Paul Serena, um, along with uh, Queensland Museum, Ralph Molnar, Dr. Ralph Molnar, Joanne Wilkinson, and they came out just to really investigate this area to see if it was the right area, to look at the geological um, features and see if there could be dinosaurs in this area. And that was the beginning of the awareness that there could be dinosaurs out here. So following that, in 2004, the landholders on that property where they did visit found dinosaur fossils. So that was the beginning of this journey um, of Aramanga Natural History Museum. Awesome. And you've been involved since basically the beginning. Yeah, yeah. It's been um, pretty amazing to have been um, a a neighbour of theirs, of the property where they were found, and started off being trained as a fossil preparator. So that's where my passion is, preparing the fossils. So it's been an amazing journey. Was the work around here your first work with fossils or had you done it previously? Yeah, no, nothing at all. So we live on a prep property with um, sheep and cattle and um, an interest in natural history, but nothing to do with dinosaurs. So it was, uh, it's been an, an amazing learning experience. Yeah. But now you're, what, 10, 15, 20 years in? Yeah, 15, 15 <laughs> almost 16 years in. And um yeah, it's, it's, it's great to be involved in the whole process of building this museum. Awesome. And the museum itself was built how long ago? We opened to the public 2016, but built 2015. So it was a pretty big move from our field station, which was on the property where we found the bones. Um, so we had to bring everything in using tractors, cars, and obviously bringing the really fragile the pelvis and everything was pretty thin, wasn't it? Mm. But um, from there, we've been open, yeah, four years to the public, and we're kind of about to go into our fifth year and new development, which is pretty exciting. Right, right. What in the next year, right? There's going to be new buildings, new lots of things. Yeah, so we received funding federally and state um, and our local council as well, which is pretty cool. And um, so hopefully what we'll, what we will be, we've just got the tenders back, but we will be able to have um, new visitor service facilities, um, a theatre, um, some extra little bit of exhibition space, but then it'll all hopefully link in and be able to help us have more people through, which will be cool. Yeah. Yeah. We should also mention too, we've got two thirds of the crew <laughs> wear multiple hats. <laughs> yes, we're missing Robin, aren't we? She's um she's our collect general manager in collections, so um she also wears a multiple hats. But yeah, we're we only have a staff of three currently running the museum. We do have seasonal staff which help us out quite a lot, but um. You know, it's um, it's a it's a pretty big job trying to trying to run the museum, especially with our accommodation and also all of the fossils that have to be preserved. Yeah. Do you get a lot of people staying? I mean, I know you opened this hotel what just a year ago. Yeah. So it has been. It's a, it's another great string to the bow, really. That it's another income stream, and it's great 
for people who visit the museum and maybe want to come and learn, do the prep experience. Um, they might do 10 days and stay at the museum. It's also another accommodation option for people in the area. So we've got a really rich gas and oil resources out here. So it's, it's also um, another accommodation option for them. Because there's only one other hotel in the city, right? Yes. <laughs> we have um, the 1885 Royal Hotel in Aramanga and then the Aramanga Motel. So. <laughs> the 2017. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you know, for a town of, um, of 40 odd people, it's, uh, it's, it's enough. So one of the big kind of claims to fame, I think, would be Cooper, right? Can you tell us a little bit about Cooper? So, well, Cooper is Australia's largest dinosaur. So he's 30 metres long and six, uh, six and a half metres tall to the hip. So um, he is pretty big. Uh, we find the fossils only an hour and a half west of the museum. So that's kind of why the museum is where it is. But yeah, we've got about between 10 and 14% of the dinosaur. But he really is what brings us the most people. People want to see Australia's largest dinosaur instead of seeing some of our smaller but still very interesting dinosaurs as well. Yeah, he's pretty cool. He's he's pretty big too. So trying to fit trying to build a place that can actually fit that dinosaur in is kind of challenging. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine because it's Cooper is what kind of sauropod is he? Well, he's a titanosaur, still undescribed. Um, we had an abstract released we actually had two abstracts released at SVP, which was pretty exciting. So this is our emerging paper for the museum. Um, we're pretty excited because it means that hopefully it'll atta- attract some more scientific involvement and yeah, more interest, especially internationally and also in Australia. What's the story behind Cooper's nickname? So Cooper refers to the area he's from, from so the Cooper Basin, um, Cooper's Creek runs through that area. So yeah, that's how he ended up with his nickname to give him a, a locality name. So we also have what Zach, Tom, Sid. Zach was found on Anzac Day, which is an Australian holiday for our um, well, our Australian and New Zealand service people. Tom was found after the young boy who found the first bones. Monty is named after the, well, he's actually named after landholders' dogs. <laughs> the story goes that um, someone asked, how did these large titanosaurs walk? And someone said, Monty walked along at the site, very senile, as he was 14 or so. And, um, and the paleontologist said, not unlike Monty. So, you know, <laughs> gives, a good, gives a good indication about the names. They really are colloquial, yeah. yeah. And Corey, you worked on Cooper back in the day? Well, I actually went to Cooper's Dig when I was actually 12, so pretty small. Um, I got to go with my grandparents and see it all happening when it was all really a hive down in the southwest corner. I think Joe actually probably remembers it better than me because she not only dug all the time, but she also prepped the Cooper's fossils, getting them ready for the announcement in 2007, which was pretty cool. So I cut my teeth, as as you say, um, learning how to prep the bones on Cooper. Um, we were all trained by Queensland Museum staff, um, geosciences staff and preparators. So Joe Wilkinson predominantly showed us how to prep these dinosaurs out. Cooper was found just in clay, so he has a really a mosaic appearance. He was really fragile, um, which, you know, had a few challenges, but it was, it was probably really good material to learn on, to be really careful and, and think about that conservation. 
Yeah, I think anyone who was at SVP would have seen Joe's handiwork with all of her cradling and everything, which was pretty cool. But Joe taught me how to prep as well, um, and also Robin. But we, um, our team of three, seems to be able to work through a lot of the material. It takes us a fair while. We're slowly getting more volunteers, more programs. But yeah, you know, starting a museum, there is no actual guidebook on doing it. But yeah. not many people get to say we started a museum, do they? No. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Was the when you were doing the early prep work on Cooper? Was that around here? So in the uh, the early years, we had a field station on the property where Cooper was found um, because there was no facility to do it. So the the landowners set up actually built a, a building. Um, and we set up a field lab. So that was pretty good. I live probably an hour from there. So it was a matter of going out on weekends and spending time. But it was where um, Robin could go and, and prep each day. So that was the early years, probably right up until 2015. All the work was done out there until we had a facility in Aramanga. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of work happened there. And there was lots of volunteers over that time, some from uh, Queensland Museum and, and just some locals who were interested in learning to prep. So they generously gave their time. Awesome. It's kind of interesting that probably yeah, I think it'd be confident to say that 90% of Cooper's holotype specimen was prepped in a tin shed. It was only about <laughs> six by six, really. So um, I guess the significance doesn't change as long as it gets done. Hey? <laughs> That's great. And so the Aramanga Museum also has megafauna, right? Yeah. So our megafauna is late Pleistocene. It's around 100,000 years old. So we work on diprotodons, so the large marsupial bears, backwards-facing pouch joey that weighed up to around 70 kilos and megalania uh, we also work on bits and pieces of procoptodon um, but pretty well anything it's quite an interesting emerging field because we we find it is a clay it's a fluvial deposit again um, and these mud springs is what brought the animals to them they're now extinct but the um, diprotodons and megafauna Pretty well, we're looking for moisture because it was so dry at that mm. period. Yeah, they're pretty cool though. They're, um, if you've ever kind of thought of what a dig, and it's probably a bit more archaeological digging those guys out because a well, a dinosaur dig can be pretty heavy and hefty. We use tractors a lot, whereas it's all the megafauna is a lot of just small probe work in the clay. It's <laughs> almost perfect, really. Nice. So at the museum, you do tours four times a day. What can visitors? expect to see or do? So we start off um, with a bit of a presentation talking about the geological history of the area, talking about the reign of dinosaurs and then the extinction, um, then leading on to the um, emergence of um, megafauna. So we sort of set the scene and give people a bit of a backstory first and then we go through our labs, our megafauna lab and our dinosaur lab, look at our material, uh, how we prep it out. And then we finish by going into the holotype room and showing them the, the type specimens of Cooper and other dinosaurs we have in the collection. Yeah, that's the cool part. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Do you guys have a lot of material that you're prepping right now? Yes, <laughs> there is so much. Um, so between the dinosaurs and megafauna, we've got kind of like over 80 sites, which is a lot wow, um, yeah. for us. Um, and it takes us about four years on average to prep every site. 
So, we've now filled up the museum. Um, <laughs> we're now out on the skillion and I think the next dig will probably include going back into the old holotype collection room, which was just a big refrigerated container. So, until we start, um, I think it's we're pretty well due for our next stage, trying to get a bit more space, free up a bit more room. And, yeah, there is a lot to do. But it's it's quite mesmerizing looking back at all of those jackets and thinking well that one came out in 2008 that one came out in 2012 but um it's all about priorities i guess yeah so how do you decide which thing you want to prep next (laughs) joe (laughs) (laughs) so largely i think that's um led by our researchers so scott hucknell at the queensland museum is a paleontologist um with the project and it, it depends on if we open a new site, something might turn up there that he feels needs investigation. So we might skip a particular site um, and start working on new material um, to, to build that picture of what's happening out here in the southwest. Cool. So anyone who was at SVP probably saw who came over to our stall would have our booth, I guess you call it, <laughs> would have seen our. Um, the tail from Zach, which was starting to get prepped out. That's a bit of a priority at the moment. But um, we're currently digging a dinosaur called Monty, um, which I talked about before. But Monty, um, a lot of the bones that we're pulling out from this site comparatively actually seem to be even bigger than Cooper. So preliminary, we're pretty excited. Um, There's no confirmed size difference, but it's at least 5 to 10% bigger, which is pretty cool. So we're super keen to get that out. We just have to, you know, keep prepping. (laughs) It seems like hopefully every time we dig something more, they get bigger, they mm-hmm. get more um, more exciting. So, we're, there's talks maybe we might start a new site next year or we'll keep going with Monty. Um, we're not 100% sure, but I think whatever it'll be, it'll be pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah, 30 meters is getting up there. The, they don't get too much bigger than that. No, no. Maybe another 10 meters or so well yeah cooper's in the top 10 at the moment yeah um so who knows it'd be nice to give the patagonians and the south americans a bit of a run for mm-hmm. their money i think <laughs> yeah for sure why do they get all have all the fun right yeah, exactly <laughs> no all respect <laughs> <laughs> so is scott the one who's going to be publishing eventually on cooper yes he will be yeah so scott is um currently doing that paper we also have a joint paper there were two abstracts released at SVP I'm sure you heard the other one is more about the geology of the Winton formation so there's a lot to be learned about the formation where these dinosaurs are being found it all helps build the story of how these dinosaurs um, lived and died I guess yeah yeah and you guys are like in a good spot for the Winton Formation and don't have a lot of competition nearby either for dig sites. No, I, we were talking about this before. Yeah, like eight hours until our closest museum is a fair way. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, we've got enough space to explore with without too much worry, I think. But, yeah, someone was saying it's a bit like the Morrison Formation 100 years ago. <laughs> Everyone trying to, trying to figure out where they belong in it. Um, so I guess we're starting to figure out where we belong in it. And, yeah, yeah, not too many people. There's only really two or three different places that are actually digging in this formation, trying to find stuff. So it's pretty cool. Every new discovery seems to have... Um, some sort of significance so we're pretty excited absolutely are there any dinosaurs you've found so far other than sauropods 
No. <laughs> not, not so far. Uh, we do have a keelid. So, we've got a turtle, which is pretty cool. Um, and he is late Cretaceous. So, pretty old. We're, we're looking more into that. Um, but no, only sauropods so far. But we Except do... in the trackways. Yeah. So, there's evidence of other dinosaur species in, in a, a different trackway um, in the Quilby Shire, which will have more research done on it in time, I guess. Nice. Do you mostly find your dinosaur bones the same way they do up by Age of Dinosaurs Museum where like a sheep trips over it or a farmer kicks it and then notices that rock looks funny kind of thing? Yeah, it's kind of a similar process. Yeah, it'll just be someone out mustering or it's it really is just the other day Robin was out doing some water runs and looked over her shoulder and she thought that it was cow patties, went back and there was three cervical, three no, three dorsal verts sitting on the, wow. on the on the surface. And then, bam, it's a new site. So, they aren't hard to find. They've just got to be discovered. And you have to kind of know what you're looking for. Yeah, well, the region we're working in is like, so they're kind of associated to the Mount Howard anticline. So, this anticline's pulling the bones from deep, from about two, mil- two meters below up to the surface and then um, the self-mulching black soil picks them up and works them up and then that's where we're finding those surface bones and that whole area is about 80 kilometers long so it's it's a fair region to be finding fossils so we have quite a few different fields with multiple uh, well, different localities within those fields yeah so that process is really different than the way we dig up bones in the u.s <laughs> could you so tell different. us a little about how that whole self-mulching soil works it's crazy to me yeah well i guess we rely on the soils a lot don't we and the good thing you if there's any good thing to come out of a drought um is the lack of vegetation on the the ground um so it does make finding dinosaur sites much easier um that would be the one positive i could think of (laughs) (laughs) about you know drought seasons but um it, it does make finding these sites a lot lot more obvious. And they're still finding more every every all the time. Um, it's just a matter of covering the country because mm-hmm. it is a huge area. It's finding new sites as you cover a different bit of country than you did last month. And I guess I guess it comes down to every time it rains. The the way the self mulching black soil works is the drying causes cracks and then the wetting causes the well, the moistening of the soil causes can, um, that to then contract again so it's just picking it up so that bone bed all those bones that were sitting below the surface may only be one one wet event off the surface so yeah we put um fence posts in the ground around here and you might come back after a big rain event and that fence post <laughs> that we pushed out so same sort of situation with the bones i think oh that's strange yeah <laughs> Yeah, I guess if you put them in the side of a cliff, would they just push back out again or not? <laughs> so once you find, say, these three vertebra stick or vertebrae sticking up on the surface of the soil, do you just have to dig down into soil, or do you have to go into rock now below the soil to get the dinosaur out? So every site seems to be a little bit different. Preservation. Cooper was found just in clay, um, so he, there was no rock at his site at all. Um, the majority of the other sites have been in a concretion of rock. Some of the bones have been complete in that concretion. Some of them, like Monty, the bones are very fragmentary in that concretion, but 
after prepping them out, they do click back together. Hmm. So it's really each site is very different. Um, even going to Sid, who's found in a trample zone, um, he's obviously been a dinosaur that's died in an area where these titanosaurs have been walking, his bones have been crushed, and then he's been preserved in that trample zone. <laughs> so that they do seem to be quite differently preserved, even within a kilometre distance. So Cooper and Zach, for instance, um, were within about a kilometre of each other. Wow. Um, so it, it all presents different challenges. Monty, the site we're working on at the moment, it's a matter of dismantling that concretion, finding natural breaks in the rock and jacketing those, removing those and, you know, as you know, marking everything so you know once you prep them out, you can then join those bones back together again. Awesome. Yeah. I think taphonomists could probably eat their heart out trying to figure (laughs) out what's happening throughout these bones, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. Is there anything else about the museum that visitors or our listeners should know about? Yeah, just that we do offer um, programs where members of the public can come and have an experience of working on these bones, be it megafauna or dinosaurs. Um, They can spend a day or as many days as they like just experiencing what it's like to expose a fossil um, for the first time in, you know, be it 95 million years or 100,000 years old. That even can we do the same sort of thing with the digs as well, which is pretty cool. We take we do two two week digs a year, two weeks of the dinosaurs in May traditionally, and two weeks of the megafauna in August, um, and we take six people a week on our digs with us, and that seems to work really well. It's a small group, and we really bond, and we get a lot done, which is really cool. So we really look at involving the public in our in our discoveries because it it really is generational work that makes us um, and it's that I guess it's that interest and intrinsic value of what we're doing keeps us going so yeah and May and August are the cooler months here (laughs) much cooler (laughs) (laughs) yes I think if you were trying to um to dig in the middle of summer when it's like 53 degrees centigrade it'd be pretty rough i'm pretty sure yeah everyone would have heat stroke and (laughs) i think we'd have the flying doctor out pretty regularly so yeah um maybe a no (laughs) so for listeners who may not be familiar with your museum yet where is the best place for them to find out more information So um, online, we have a website, which is um, www.enhm.com.au, and that will give you any amount of information that you need to know. But, yeah, we'd love people to contact us if they wanted to know more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram. If anyone wants to see what we're up to, we try and put a bit of of information out there about what what we're about. And even if you've got some questions, don't hesitate to give us a give us a bell. It's always exciting to see when anyone from the general public or anyone is interested to see what we're doing. So yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. No, thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate you coming all the way out here. It's a it's phenomenal, really. We it's an amazing effort. Thank you very much. Thanks again, Joe and Corey. We had a really great time seeing Aramanga and all of the collections. And we also had a lovely dinner with those two. We actually, we did the interview and then we had dinner because there is a really great kitchen that's part of Cooper's Lodge, which is part of the museum. Yeah. And it's a nice place to stay too. Yeah. I definitely recommend that. Uh, 
the night sky was amazing. We got a Garrett got a time lapse of all the stars. Yeah, I love a good time lapse, and that was a good one. Yeah, we included that in our Adventures in Australia video about the Aramanga Natural History Museum. So if you want to see it, check that out on YouTube. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Neovenator or Neovenator, depending on your preference, which was a request from Neovenator via Patreon and our Discord. So thank you. Yeah, it's a pretty good name choice, Neovenator, if you like Neovenator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so Neovenator was an allosauroid that lived in the early Cretaceous and what is now the Isle of Wight in the UK. And it's estimated to be about 25 feet or 7.6 meters long. It weighed about 2,200 to 4,400 pounds, about 1 to 2,000 kilograms. And it had a gracile build. It was probably an apex predator. Neovenator had five teeth in its premaxilla. It also had a nostril that was twice as long as high, though other theropods also had large nostrils. Neovenator may have had a sensitive face, as described by Chris Barker and others in 2017. It had this complex system of neurovascular canals, which worked like sensory organs, a similar trait to Spinosauridae, though it probably didn't look for prey in the water like dinosaurs in Spinosauridae. Neovenator may have used its complex system of neurovascular canals to be more sensitive to pressure and temperature, to control the jaw pressure and for feeding, basically avoid biting into bone while eating. Oof. It's a good thing to have. They may have also used it for a courtship or nurturing their young, like many modern crocodilians. But we need more analysis to understand this facial sensitivity. Neovenator fossils were found in 1978 when a storm caused rocks to fall to the beach on the Isle of Wight. And then these rocks were collected by the Henwood family and then-geology student David Richards, who sent them to the Museum of Isle of Wight Geology and the British Museum of Natural History, where Alan Jack Cherig found the fossils belonged to Iguanodon and some type of theropod. And the Iguanodon was later referred to Mentelosaurus. And then the theropod, of course, later became known as Neovenator. In the 1980s, the British Museum of Natural History sent a team to collect more bones, and they found another theropod, tail vertebra. Amateur paleontologists started searching, too, and a lot of fossils were found. They found uh, snout, teeth, part of the lower jaw, most of the vertebral column, ribs, chevrons, hind limbs, and more. And that was about 70% of the skeleton. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. And then more individuals were found. So they were thought to be a new species of Megalosaurus, but Steve Hutt in 1990 suggested, eh, maybe not. 
1996, Hutt, David Martell, and Michael Barker named and described the type species Neovenator solarii, and the genus name means new hunter. The species name is in honor of the Solero family who owned the site where it was found. Too many people had found the fossils, so they didn't want to name just one person as the one who discovered the dinosaur. Steve Brusati, Roger Benson, and Steve Hutt then re-described Neovenator in 2008. Teeth that look the same as the holotype of Neovenator were found in France in 2014. The holotype of Neovenator also had pathologies, healed fractures, vertebrae fusions, and more. Neovenator lived among fish, amphibians, lizards, pterosaurs, and then, of course, Mentilosaurus. <laughs> Very cool. And our fun fact of the day is that herbivores often specialize on specific plants. For example, diplodocids definitely couldn't eat grass. It hadn't evolved when they were around, but even if it had, their teeth would have been pretty useless for biting it. Sauropods instead would have been mostly foliovores, oh. <laughs> which means that they ate leaves. And then other herbivorous dinosaurs could be more specifically categorized, such as some Mesozoic avialans were probably frugivores or granivores, meaning that they ate fruit or seeds because we've seen seeds in their stomach. It's also been proposed that some late Cretaceous herbivores may have been partially anthophagous, meaning that they ate flowers, and that might have directly affected the evolution of early flowers. That one's pretty speculative. I don't mm. know if it belongs in a fun fact, but it's fun to say anyway. <laughs> <laughs> then hadrosaurs have famously been found eating wood, which makes them xylophagus. And Karen Chin pointed out that they couldn't fully digest wood, so they probably weren't eating it like a lot of you know insects and fungus do. But instead, they were probably eating those insects and fungus <laughs> that were in the wood and just you just bite it off in one chunk. Exactly. They didn't have opposable thumbs, so just chomp it down. <laughs> Their teeth were getting replaced, what, every month? So just bite through the wood. Who cares? They'll, yep. they'll wear out, but you'll get a new set of teeth and you'll get all the fungus and your gut all sorted out. And some splinters. Yeah, I'm sure. But because no one knows any of these terms, and I'm certainly not going to remember to say foliovore, we're just going to keep calling sauropods herbivores. You might randomly remember. <laughs> yeah. Just throw it in every now and again. Kind of like when I remember to say Erictodromius burrow rather than rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you want to join our growing community and join the conversations with fellow dinosaur enthusiasts, check out our page at patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good